0: Well, I'm sure everyone in this room has had the unpleasant experience of going to the refrigerator, pulling out that tub of leftovers or that bag of lettuce, maybe, or that jug of milk, and you open it up, and that thing has given up the ghost. (laughs) It is passed on. It is no more. Well, now imagine just spraying some air freshener on it and calling it good. Kind of, kind of sickening, kind of revolting. Or imagine uh, you have a wound that you're treating, gangrene, and you get a Band-Aid, and you put it over the gangrene, and you tell yourself that you've fixed the problem. Well, you haven't fixed the problem. No air freshener, no Band-Aid is going to solve those problems for you. They cannot fix the corruption that is already there. And as disgusting as those ideas are, are to all of us. It's even worse than the sight of God when sinful people, unbelievers, who have no love for God, no love for Christ, try and take the principles that he has given in his word and apply them to their lives because of the practical value that they really have, but they don't have any love for God. They're trying to fix problems that they can't fix, that are deeper than what they can even see. Believers, on the other hand, we want to live in submission to God's authority. We want to abide by the principles that he's given us because we love him, because we have an interest in Christ. If you look at the world, they will sometimes take principles from God's word, especially Proverbs, and apply them because they just work. They really work. And you can live a good life if you apply these principles. But if you do it with the wrong motives, it is not pleasing to God. This chapter shows you one of the practical sides of wisdom, as, uh, as all of Proverbs does. But Solomon assumes throughout that the one who is taking his words to heart is doing so out of a desire to live well before God. Not just to live well, not just to live well under the sun, as it were, but to live well in the sight of God. That's why the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so in this chapter, Solomon gives four prohibitions that lead to living well before God. Now the first of these prohibitions is found in verses one to five, and that is avoid rash commitments. The text says, my son if you have become surety for your neighbor have given a pledge for a stranger if you have been snared with the words of your mouth have been caught with the words of your mouth do this my son do this then my son and deliver yourself since you have come into the hand of your neighbor go humble yourself and importune your neighbor give no sleep to your eyes nor slumber to your eyelids deliver yourself like a gazelle from the hunter's hand and like a bird from the hand of the fowler." Now Solomon introduces this section by saying, my son, and that's a key thing to remember is that throughout these chapters Solomon is addressing his son. And that's why certain things are very contextualized for speaking to a young man. But he speaks here about the potentiality of his son becoming surety for his neighbor, becoming surety Giving a pledge to a stranger. Now, a surety is someone who has become legally liable for the debt, default, or failure in duty of another. Now, I don't know about you, but surety is not a word that I go around using in my everyday speech. It's not a very it's not very uh, high on my radar. But it's putting yourself in someone's place or sharing in the consequences of their defaulting. And the idea of a pledge is just a handshake. Did you know handshakes go all the way back to this point in time? You know, we tend to think that some of these cultural, uh, you know, symbols are relatively new or modern. Some of them go all the way back to antiquity. And that's the idea here. If you've shaken hands and made a deal with a stranger. Now, if you want a picture of what surety looks like, There's a great place to go, and that's in Genesis uh, with the account of Joseph and his brothers going down to Egypt. Um, Genesis chapter 43, just to give you some background before we start uh, reading a few verses, after Joseph is made ruler of Egypt under famine famine strikes the whole land, his brothers uh, go down to Egypt to buy food, and without realizing it, they meet Joseph and they don't realize it's Joseph, but he realizes, these are my brothers. And so they're having a conversation, and he asks them about their family. And so he tells them, uh, bring your brother back when you, come, when you come. Bring your brother with you when you come back, or don't come back at all. And so this is what they're telling to Jacob, their father. Uh, chapter 43, verse 7. But they said, these are the brothers speaking, the man questioned particularly about us and our relatives, saying, Is your father still alive? Have you another brother? So we answered his questions. Could we possibly know that he would say, bring your brother down? Judah said to his father, Israel, send the lad with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, we as well as you and our little ones. I myself will be surety for him. You may hold me responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame before you forever. For if we had not delayed, surely by now we could have returned twice. And then skipping down to verse 15, so the men took this present and they took double the money in their hand and Benjamin, then they arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. And so they were able to convince Jacob to let them take Benjamin. Now as they're returning back to the land of Canaan, Joseph has his steward put his cup in Benjamin's sack as a way of, you know, ensnaring him. And shortly after they leave, the steward overtakes them and accuses them of theft, finds the cup in Benjamin's sack, and takes Benjamin captive. All the brothers return, and Judah pleads with Joseph, not knowing it's Joseph, telling him about his father and his frail health that is bound up with the life of his son. And so we read in chapter 44, verses 30, beginning in verse 32, he explains the the deal that he made with his father. He says, for your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then let me bear the blame before my father forever. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me for fear that I see the evil that would overtake my father? Now, obviously, in this case, there's A little more complexity involved he's dealing with his uh, old father and he knows that he has caused his father some significant grief and he doesn't want to see that happen again but at the same time he's also giving a really clear picture of what it means to be surety for someone he's willing to take benjamin's place as a slave rather than benjamin suffer that himself that's how being surety for someone works you're taking their place. Now, this is the closest analogy that I can think of that we have today is where we go through the process of co-signing a loan for somebody. Now, is this necessarily a prohibition against co-signing? I mean, there are a lot of cases where you know, people don't have credit and they need somebody to co-sign a loan for them. Is it always, as is, is Solomon saying, don't ever co-sign a loan? I don't think that's what Solomon is saying. I think when you look at the text, there are some clear indicators that this neighbor, this stranger, is probably someone who is a risk, someone who can't get alone without someone's help. Note verse two. It reads, the words snare, snared, caught with the words of your mouth. Refer to being snared or being caught unless it's a bad situation, right? The cosigning isn't always a bad thing. Helping someone out with their debt isn't always a bad thing. But when it's the sort of scenario that you would describe as a snare or a trap, that's a sign that you've done something unwise. You've become guarantor for the wrong person. I mean, there's a reason why manufacturers, one manufacturer won't guarantee another manufacturer's products. That would just make no sense. He has no way of vouching for the credibility, and he's not going to lose money over that. The point is, don't enter into these kinds of agreements lightly. But what do you do if you find yourself in this bad scenario? You know, maybe this person seemed uh, legitimate. This person was your friend. You've known him for years, and you co-sign a loan, or you help him out in some other way that puts you at risk. What do you do if you find yourself in this bad scenario? and turns out to be somebody that you didn't think he was. Solomon says in verses three to five, be diligent. Do what you can to release yourself from this obligation. He says, do this then, my son, and deliver yourself since you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go humble yourself and importune your neighbor. Now Solomon leaves it intentionally vague regarding whether or not this neighbor in verse three is the same neighbor as in verse one. The point is, I think Solomon's intentionally vague, the point is that whoever you need to speak to, whether the person that you became surety for or the person that you're under obligation to, whoever you need to speak to in order to get the problem resolved, do it. Because debt like that can lead to slavery and ruin. He says, importune your neighbor. Literally, the, the, Greek, the Hebrew word is storm, you storm against this person. You harass this person. Obviously not in a, in a hostile way, but you don't let it go. You be like the persistent widow in Luke 18 that wouldn't let the judge have any peace. And then in verse 5, he says, Deliver yourself like a gazelle from the hunter's hand and like a bird from the hand of the fowler. You're trapped like an animal because of the words that you've spoken, the commitment that you've made. Take action like you're trying to get out of that trap. Don't just give in. Now, Solomon arranges this chapter in four prohibitions, four things that we should avoid. But within each one of these, we can infer the positive exhortation. And there is a positive exhortation in these verses. And that is make careful well-thought commitments. God cares about how we live in this world. He does. And we need to be careful about how our words bind us. If we say we will do something, or if we make a commitment, we are bound in the sight of God to keep our commitments, even to our hurt. Unless, of course, the, the thing that we've committed to do is sin, in which case we need repentance through and through. Our commitments matter to God, so we should treat them seriously and carefully. And so Solomon tells his son, avoid rash commitments in verses 1 to 5. And then in verses 6 to 11, he tells his son, avoid lazy conduct. Avoid lazy conduct. Now, this prohibition flows neatly from the exhortation to persistence that Solomon has just enjoined in verses 3 to 5. Here, Solomon prescribes lazy conduct by highlighting the differences between the ant and a lazy man. Now, the ant is one creature that has captivated the imaginations of people since antiquity. Uh, Many of you, no doubt, grew up with Aesop's fables, right? General nods in the room, Aesop's fables. Well, one of the fables, usually adapted as the fable of the, the ant and the lazy grasshopper, tells the story about an ant who has been diligent, worked hard all summer, has grain for the winter. Along comes a grasshopper who's starving and wants some of that food. He wants the ant to share with him. He's begging for mercy, and the ant refuses it and says, if you, danced, if you sang all summer, you should dance all winter. And he sends him on his way. And the moral of the story, of course, that you learned, was that you use your time wisely by working hard rather than frolicking so you will have sustenance rather than starvation. I tend to think that Aesop borrowed the idea for his fable from Solomon. Solomon gives this analogy in a somewhat different form. He doesn't compare insect to insect. He compares an insect to a man. Beginning in verse six, Solomon says, "'Go to the ant, O sluggard. "'Observe her ways and be wise which having no chief, officer, or ruler, prepares her food in summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. How long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Your poverty will come in like a vagabond, and your need like an armed man. You see, Solomon begins by pointing out that the ant is a paragon of diligence. The ant that lives in Israel is particularly known for its activity of harvesting and storing grain in its nest. And I mean, think about it. How fitting is it that Solomon is writing about an ant? I mean, we know Solomon was wise and he explored all kinds of topics and fields of study. His pursuits were vast, but he even cared about the smallest of creatures. Even the smallest of creatures to the man who was given divine wisdom was insightful. Elsewhere, Solomon describes the ant as exceedingly wise in Proverbs 30, 24, and 25. Solomon makes the point of saying that we can learn about living rightly before God by observing the natural world he has created. It is God's intention for people to work. I mean, why did God make man? If you go all the way back to Genesis 2, yes, we all know the answer. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But when you read the account in Genesis 2, why did God create man? To till the earth. To cultivate the soil. To keep the garden. God made man to work, to labor. Work was not always troublesome. Work was not always toilsome. We experience it as trouble because of the curse. But the ant... Gives a concrete example of diligence that is worthy of imitation. Solomon says that he has no chief officer or ruler. See, the ant has no one telling her what to do. She takes initiative and does what needs to be done without anyone having to prod her into action. You know, some people have to have somebody constantly on them telling them what to do. They're not following the ant's example. The ant labors. Looking ahead, verse 8, the ant plans ahead for what's coming. She applies herself to her work plans out her provisions. That's the kind of diligence that we should have. We should follow that example. That's the pattern that God has laid out for us. And the sluggard, on the other hand, who is depicted as a man rather than an insect, is nothing like the ant. And so although we've seen uh, that the ant is a paragon of diligence, we now see that the sluggard is a picture of depravity. And how ironic, I think, that it, the, the hero in this little parable, the hero in Solomon's little parable, is the bug and not the man. That really says something about the depravity of the man, the depravity of the sluggard. Solomon characterizes the sluggard as someone who loves sleep more than he loves survival. He says something similar elsewhere in Proverbs 20, verse 13. He says, do not love sleep or you'll become poor. Open your eyes and you'll be satisfied with food. Now the word sluggard, you probably think about a slug when you hear the word sluggard. I know I sure do. And what what does that refer to? Slugs are slow. They don't get in a hurry about anything. It's like calling someone a sloth. I saw a sloth once. They're really slow. (laughs) This is someone who is slow to take action, slow to do anything useful or productive, slow to do anything that requires real effort. And note that Solomon says nothing about this person's physical capacity. In this text, it seems that this person has absolutely nothing wrong physiologically. He just has a case of the don't want to's. If he does not get up out of bed, if he does get up out of bed, that is, he goes about his tasks in a way that seems as though he'd rather be doing something else. He's spaced out. He doesn't care about his work. He'd rather do something else than provide for himself or possibly even his family. The sluggard, unlike the ant, does not appreciate work. He does not appreciate labor. And what is the result? We see it in verse 11. Your poverty will come in like a vagabond and your need like an armed man. This word vagabond is literally someone who keeps on walking. You see it in the Hebrew particularly. It's got this repetitive idea to it. They just keep on walking and walking and walking. The idea is that poverty and want come upon the sluggard as the natural unfolding of events, the way a wandering man is naturally going to arrive further on down the road. But poverty and want also come violently, relentlessly, like an armed man. Avoid lazy conduct, Solomon says. But implicit here is another positive exhortation. Pursue diligence in all your endeavors. He says in Ecclesiastes 9, verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there is no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. You have a limited time on this earth. Your life is a vapor. It's a breath that vanishes quickly. Use your time wisely Paul says in Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. We all need this reminder. You know, it's easy to to badger others about laziness. It's easy to badger others about being sluggards. I think Raymond Ortland gets it right when he says, let's all admit it. There's a sluggard deep inside each of us. At times, we all have to wrestle against this inclination to hate work, to be sick of labor, to be sick of toil. But we have to view work and labor the way God views work and labor. This is what we're made for. This is what God intended us to be and to do, is to work. And not just to work, but to work for him. It was his garden. And we were just living there, free of charge. Work with heart, dedicating your labor to the Lord who made you to work. And so Solomon has given his son prohibitions concerning rash commitments in verses 1 to 5, and lazy conduct in verses 6 to 11, and now in verses 12 to 19, he tells his son, avoid worthless characters. Avoid worthless characters. He begins with... How to identify a worthless man. We read, beginning in verse 12, a worthless person, a wicked man, is the one who walks with a perverse mouth, who winks with his eyes, who signals with his feet, who points with his fingers, who with perversity in his heart continually devises evil, who spreads strife. Therefore, his calamity will come suddenly. Instantly, he will be broken, and there will be no healing. What is this worthless man? The word worthless in Hebrew is belial. You've probably seen this elsewhere. It occurs once or twice in the New Testament. But the word belial does mean worthless, but it's a little bit broader than that. It involves wickedness. This man is worthless because of his wickedness. He's wicked because of his worthlessness. Verse 12 begins to characterize him as the one who walks with a perverse mouth. Now, obviously, he's not using his mouth to walk. He's not a a slug. The perverse mouth characterizes his entire manner of life. That's the idea of walking with a perverse mouth. Everything that he does is characterized with this perversity of speech. These characteristics in verse 13, winking with the eyes, signaling with the feet, pointing or rather instructing with the fingers. All of these ideas suggest communicating to others using stealth. He's got secret codes that he's using to communicate with others. But he's putting his entire body into achieving these nefarious purposes. And verse 14, interestingly, gives two characteristics, two categories of characteristics. There are internal, there's an internal characteristic, and an external The internal says he, with perversity in his heart, continually devises evil, continually looking for new ways to do evil. This is what his mind is saturated with. And then externally, he's known for spreading strife, literally controversy. Now, I find it super fascinating that Solomon gives an internal characteristic. Isn't the goal to give a warning? I mean, you're looking for telltale signs. You're looking for external features so you can identify this man. How would you detect someone's thoughts, I mean, other than their perverse mouth? Well, remember that the Word of God is a mirror. When we read the Word of God, we see our reflection, sometimes in places that we don't want to see it. The word man may recognize himself when he looks at it. You don't know the wicked man's thoughts, but the wicked man knows his thoughts. And when he reads that this is the thing that characterizes a wicked man, perversity in his heart, continually devising it's quite possible that he may see his reflection in this mirror and come under conviction. In verse 15, the outcome is that his calamity will come suddenly. Instantly he will be broken and there will be no healing. Now, God is not mentioned in this verse, but we know that God is the one who exercises vengeance against those who forsake him. Deuteronomy 32, 35, in the context of uh, God is speaking about how Israel has done and will forsake him. He says, vengeance is mine and retribution. In due time, their foot will slip. For the day of their calamity is near and the impending things are hastening upon them. Now we can know this with certainty that God will exercise his vengeance on those who forsake him. Not only because God has said that those who forsake him are subject to calamity and swift swift destruction but also as we see in verses 16 to 19 God has already identified the worthless man. God has identified the worthless man. Beginning in verse 16, we read, There are six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven which are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. These things that God hates, these abominations to his soul, are just other ways of restating the characteristics of the worthless man. To put it simply, God hates a worthless man. He hates these worthless deeds. If you wonder about the formula that Solomon uses in verse 16 of six things, yea, seven, yes, seven, it's an attention grabber. It gets your attention, it gets you thinking. Sometimes this formula is intended to draw attention to the final item in the list, but in a sense, it's just the best way to poetically repeat a number. And we know that in Hebrew poetry, they're really fond of parallelism, of repetition, and you can't say, it wouldn't really make sense to say seven things Yahweh hates and seven that are an abomination to his soul. As one commentator said, that's boring. And the Bible is not boring. But verses 16 to 19 do point back to 12 to 15. But they put emphasis on the fact that God has judged this man. His sins are against God. He has offended God. Or to put it in Paul's words, with God, as all of us once were. Verse 16 uses strong language. Solomon says, Yahweh hates. These things are an abomination to his soul. Well, God tells Isaiah, my thoughts are not your thoughts. You know, we don't think the way God thinks. We don't think according to his standard of holiness. And we can certainly recognize that these things, these characteristics, if we met this in a person, this guy would be unpleasant. But we don't have nearly the standard of holiness that God has. But thankfully, when God says, thoughts are not your thoughts, it's given in the context of God showing compassion and mercy to the wicked when he repents of his wickedness. Look at Isaiah 55. Beginning in verse 6 Seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You ought to hate what God hates. You ought to loathe what God loathes. What is abominable to to his soul ought to be abominable to your soul. And sadly, if we're honest, we would find that our holiness is often far short of God's standard. But how we need his compassion. How we need his mercy. Like this wicked man who turns and repents in Isaiah. It says in John 6.37, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. God does not reject those who come to him. Rather, he is the one who is causing them to come to him. There's a positive exhortation in all this. Repent. If you are this wicked person, God knows it. And you need to repent. But choose your friends and companions carefully. Take note of their motives and conduct. The people that we consort with, they influence us. Choose your friends. Choose friends that are characterized by virtue and piety. If you yourself lack virtue and piety, turn to Christ. Come to him with repentance, and he will not cast you away. Lay hold of the provision that God has made for sinners like you. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. And so Solomon has carefully enjoined his son through Solomon, or the Holy Spirit has enjoined you through Solomon to avoid rash commitments in verses 1 to 5, to avoid lazy conduct in verses 6 to 11, and to avoid worthless characters in verses 12 to 19. And in the remainder of the chapter, he gives the fourth and final prohibition. Avoid adulterous consorts. Beginning in verse 20, we read, My son, observe the commandment of your father and do not forsake the teaching of your mother. Bind them continually on your heart. Tie them around your neck. When you walk about, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk to you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is light. And her proofs for discipline are the way of life, to keep you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Do not desire her beauty in your heart, nor let her capture you with her eyelids. For on account of a harlot, one is reduced to a loaf of bread, and an adulteress hunts for the precious life. Can a man take fire in his bosom, and his clothes not be burned? Or can a man walk on hot coals, and his feet not be scorched? So is the one who goes in to his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her will not go unpunished. Men do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he is hungry. But when he is found, he must repay sevenfold. He must give all the substance of his house. The one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. He who would destroy himself does it. Wounds and disgrace he will find, and his reproach will not be blotted out. For jealousy enrages a man, and he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will not accept any ransom nor will he be satisfied, though you give many gifts. Solomon begins this prohibition with a reminder, the enduring need to remember parental instruction in verses 20 to 24. Now this handful of verses, the way it flows, it's almost an interruption of Solomon's flow of thought. And that's, that tells you that when Solomon is saying this, what he's saying here is important he interjects it as a stark reminder of just how important it is to remember the principles of god's law that is that his that his son has learned and is still learning from his parents i mean the book of proverbs itself is uh, instruction to his son it's part of this learning but it's an echo of deuteronomy 6 4 to 9. Deuteronomy 6, 4-9, the Shema, as it's called, says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. The love for God should penetrate your entire being. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. That's what Solomon has been doing. That's what Solomon and his wife Have been doing and talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates the Word of God the teaching of God the law of God are to saturate your entire life and you're to communicate this to your son to your children Now, these images of binding the commandments and the instruction on your heart and tying them around your neck are metaphors for integrating them into the fabric of your life. Now, there are Jews today who take that literally and they'll tie these little boxes of scroll onto their hands or they'll put phylacteries on their heads. But that misses the point. How often do they read those words? How do they love God? How much do they love God? The goal of this parental instruction is to keep you from the evil woman. And what is the connection between parental instruction in the law of God and keeping someone from adultery? Parents have a unique influence on their children, do they not? Parents, what will you teach your children? How will you instruct them in the law of God? Will you give them direct instruction In the Word of God? Will you give them the instruction that comes through your example? How to live godly in the midst of a wicked generation? We don't have the guarantee that doing so will result in believing children, but we have a guarantee of what happens when we don't. Look at the book of Judges. They did not pass on those things, they did not instruct their children, and the book of Judges is a mess. That's what you leave to your children if you don't instruct them. And if you give them instruction, it can serve as a great restraining force on their lives. But the effect is to keep keep their son from the evil woman. And so Solomon then moves into the next section, which is the dire consequences of committing adultery. There's a reason, a drastic reason, why you should not commit adultery, and Solomon is giving one of those reasons. The primary reason is that God says, don't do it. He's made it this way, that a man should cleave to his wife. He made them in beginning, man and woman, and they shall be one flesh. It disrupts the natural order to commit adultery, to forsake your wife. In this section, Solomon addresses his son. Again, we, we saw my son in verse 20. But he addresses his son, which is likely a big part of why in this section he targets the adulteress. But the same principles are equally true of the adulterer, even if the consequence is rather different. Verse 25, he says, Do not desire her beauty in your heart, nor let her capture you with her eyelids. In other words, beware of advertising. Advertising. A warning about the advertising tactics that adulterous people use. He enjoins him to use self-control, to exercise the benefit of the reproof and discipline he has received. In verse 26, in the NASB it says, for on account of a harlot, one is reduced to a loaf of bread. A better uh, translation would capture more the idea, and I think the ESV does this, but I don't have it in my notes, but it's the idea that um, the, the cost of a harlot, the, the price that you pay for a harlot, is like a, is a loaf of bread. And the idea is not to say that harlotry is better than adultery, by any means, but he's talking about the social consequences. The social consequences are not as similar. And practically speaking, while a, a harlot will cost a loaf of bread, mere money or goods, the adulterous woman will cost your life. Adultery has more severe social consequences. Now, the clear point, especially as it unfolds in verses 27 to 29, is that committing adultery is like trying to hold fire close to your body or trying to walk on hot coals. You will get burned. You will suffer. You will be punished. And Solomon tells his son, most likely you're going to be punished by her husband. But we know in the context, the broader context of the law, that definitely you'll be punished by God because God is the one who exercises vengeance. And then in verses 30 to 31, he compares one crime to another, one violation of the Ten Commandments to another violation of the Ten Commandments. He says, Men do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he is hungry. But when he is found... He must repay sevenfold. He must give all the substance of his house. None of us is without compassion for the hungry man who steals a loaf of bread. But none of us would say the man is without guilt just because he was hungry or that he is not liable to repercussions. Now, we may sympathize with Jean Valjean for stealing the loaf of bread, But like the reformed Jean Valjean, we recognize that theft requires a repayment. Verses 32 and 33, he says, the one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. Literally, bereft of heart. Bereft of mind. He who would destroy himself does it. Wounds and disgrace he will find. And his reproach will not be blotted out. Adultery is senseless. Adultery leads to ruin. The reproach of adultery cannot be blotted out. And this is, by the way, a clear reason why an adulterer is disqualified from being an elder. He's not above reproach, and he never can be. Solomon goes on. For jealousy enrages a man, and he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will not accept any ransom, nor will will he be satisfied, though you give many gifts. Jealousy enrages a man. Jealousy poisons any relationship. But this particular sin is bound to stir up the direst jealousy. This man has opportunity. He will strike and, vengeance. and will you try and give gifts or bribes as recompense? Will you heap insult upon insult? These are dire warnings. These are dire consequences. But even in the midst of all these dire warnings, there is positive exhortation. Remember the instruction you have received, which will keep you from pursuing evil. Guard yourself from adultery by guarding God's word in your heart and putting it into practice in your life. Guard against these seductive wiles. I mean, think about it. Back in verse 25, do not desire her beauty in your heart nor let her capture you with her eyelids. She is a snare. She's out to get you. And that's not just a paranoid statement. There are people out there that want to undermine our integrity, and we have to be careful and we have to guard ourselves against that. Now, as we conclude, I think it would be helpful to revisit some of these exhortations. The first one was make careful, well thought commitments. Our words matter. When we say things, when we say we will do things or not do things, we need to abide by our word. We need to be people of integrity when it comes to our speech. God cares how we live, God cares how we speak, and we need to take commitments seriously. Pursue diligence in all your endeavors. We need to have God's eyes when we look at work. It was really easy to enter into our job, go to work, and just hate being there. Maybe it's a bad environment. Maybe we don't enjoy being there. It's hard. But God, God has made us to work. And we should find joy and satisfaction in our labor because God has made us to do it. And we can ultimately dedicate it to him, which is a great joy. Choose your friends and companions carefully. Taking note of their motives and conduct. Choose friends that are characterized by virtue and piety. Look out for those people that are not. And remember the instruction you have received, which will keep you from pursuing evil. We have to guard ourselves, we have to use the spiritual resources that God has given us. Now, we've all known people who took their commitment seriously, who were hard workers who were careful with the company they kept, who maintained marital fidelity, and yet were, despite all of these external virtues, unregenerate, at enmity with God. People that take these principles and apply them to their lives without having any love for God, any true relationship with Christ, these people are rotten milk with air freshener sprayed over it. These virtues will not be what saves anyone. This practical wisdom will never make someone a Christian. But becoming a Christian will cause you to pursue wisdom as a reflection of God's pattern for right living in this world. Heed the words of Solomon and pursue this wisdom. But make sure that you're not pursuing wisdom as a means of attaining your own righteousness. You'll never get there. You'll never be righteous enough before God. Only by putting your faith in Christ and receiving his righteousness in exchange for your own will you stand justified before God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We thank you again for your word. We thank you that it is living and active, that it pierces us. Father, I pray that we would meditate on these things, that we would be convicted of the sin that resides still in our hearts. Lord, as we struggle against the flesh, as we wage war against our members, put this wisdom into practice, that we would apply it not as a way of conforming externally to your law, but as an expression of a transformed heart, a heart that has been renewed by the Holy Spirit, a heart that has been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that we would be diligent to apply these things with the right motives, but that others also would see the way that we live that it would be a testimony to them, a witness to you, a witness to what you have accomplished for us in Christ, the salvation that is freely available. Father, I pray that your word would ever be on our lips, that we would speak pure words, sound words, that we would exhort those around us to pursue wisdom before you. Not wisdom that just gains practical benefits, but wisdom that demonstrates a heart that has been renewed, a heart that has been born again. Father, we pray these things in Christ's name, amen.